Yeah, so this morning I'm going to talk about pastoral care, which for some of us is a yawn topic. Um, makes you kind of want to fall asleep on a Sunday morning. But it shouldn't be that. In actual fact, it's a, it's a paradox because every person who goes to a church wants to be part of a church that's loving and caring and where they're um, known and where they're cared for. And um, this passage from Paul is at the end of the first letter, and it's like a PS section. It's like he's finished the main bit, and then he sort of gives a list of dot points of other things that they should be doing as the church just to be a good church. And so that's why there's kind of all these kind of quick, quick, a quick succession of ideas. And um, they, they seem to focus on pastoral care. Um, and so that's what we're going to focus on. How do we get to have a church that's really loving and caring where the congregation knows that they're part of a church that cares for them and cares for each other? Now, there's basically two ideas here in the passage, and I think they're a little bit surprising um, for uh, what we would e- we wouldn't expect to see this. The two ideas are this. You need to love your leaders... And you also need to love each other. You need to love your leaders and you need to love each other. So let's look at that. You can't hate your leaders. If you are a Christian and you go to church and you have been for a while and you criticise your leaders, your community group leaders, maybe the way the Sunday schools run, Maybe you don't openly criticise it, but you sort of make comments about the church council, maybe, about your minister. If you don't love them, if you don't respect them, if you take them for granted, then it's a sign that you're an immature Christian. It's a sign that you uh, don't understand the gospel, and it's a sign that you don't understand grace. All right? So I'll just open with that. That got you listening. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, in ancient Greco-Roman society, leadership worked in a different way. Uh, Leadership, basically, um, it was the wealthy who assumed uh, a leadership role in the community. Um, perhaps they were um, benefactors of particular groups, or perhaps, perhaps they used their money to position themselves to become benefactors. Um, a parallel, if you've ever read the, um, you know, the, the Jane Austen books or seen the, show, the BBC movies and TV shows of those Jane Austen books, you'll see that it's often the wealthiest in the town that exercises a kind of leadership because they own the land and people kind of looked up, look up to them. Um, But in the New Testament church, leadership was earned in a different way. Leadership was earned through gifting. So it didn't matter what your wealth or your social status was. If you were a good leader and if you were of good standing and if the elders of the church um, wanted you and invited you, you you could become a leader. Uh, One important 20th century Bible scholar called F.F. Bruce described it this way. He said, leaders did not do the appropriate work because they had been appointed as leaders, rather they were recognised as leaders because they were seen to be doing the work. They had the gifting and then they assumed the leadership. 
So for this reason, when Paul says to the congregation in Thessalonica, hold them in high esteem, love them because of their work, this is actually a countercultural statement. All right? it, it's it's, it's going to jump out at this to this congregation. Um, he wanted them to hold them up in high regard because they were actually doing the ministry work rather than, he said, don't default to the secular standards of leadership. You might think this is not such a big, big thing, but um, if, if the church got this wrong, it could cause a lot of division um, in terms of who we should be following in the community. Who are the real leaders in this church? And uh, we see in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, this is a particular problem for them. Now, I suspect some of you might still find this a weird idea. Partial care, healthy church, why, why is loving the leader so important? Well, um, one of my favourite early church um, fathers, um, one of the um, people from like about 18 or 1700 years ago, John Chrysostom, he described it this way, and I'm paraphrasing from what he said. He said, Paul does not merely say love, but he says highly, love very highly, as children love their parents. Why? Because through your church leader, you found the precious jewels of eternal life. Through them, you receive the kingdom. Through their hands, all things are done. Through them, the gates of heaven are open to you. Think about the Sunday school leaders you had as a kid or the youth group leaders who led you through those initial ideas. Think about the mentors that you might have had over the years. That person that explained the gospel to you the first time. John Chrysostom goes on, he says, If you love Christ, it doesn't matter who your minister is. You should love them because through them you are finding out about the mysteries of God. And then he offers this great illustration. I love this. He says, if there was this incredible palace covered in gold and the finest jewels, and you stumbled across a person who actually had the key to that palace, and then when you ask them, they let you in straight away, wouldn't you think that person was amazing? Wouldn't you love them as much as you love your own eyes? I love that. Wouldn't you hug and kiss them? But your own minister, this is what he says, has shown you the way to the kingdom of heaven and you don't love and kiss him. Not that I'm suggesting that. Do you pay him compliments? Or he says this, if you have a wife, do you not love the person who introduced you to her? Uh, Joe and I um, introduced Tom Hodson to Lee uh, at a Radiohead concert several years ago and that's why Tom loves me. And then Chris Osson says, so if you truly love Christ, if you love the kingdom of heaven, love the one who is helping you with this. Now, of course, he's not talking about um, fawning. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about hero worshipping the leader or leaders. And Christians do do that sometimes. And, and that's kind of missing the point. That's silly. Actually, the congregation's to hold them in high regard, in love, he says. And the reason is because the leaders are part of the body of Christ, a part of the community. Um, the leaders are not like a service provider for you to come and consume. The leaders are one of you, but um, the leaders are asked to set aside more time to serve the community. So that's the logic here. This is the beginning of good partial care. Love the leaders. And that will get the church on the right path. If you want us to be 
a church that falls apart than hate the leaders. You can start by attacking me and then the church will fall apart. Can I just say on the side here, I've not experienced any attack in Mary Creek. So if you're new here, don't think this is Peter having a go at the congregation. I'm just looking through what Paul's saying in the passage. How do you love your leaders? You can love your leaders with affirming words, going out of your way to thank them. After the service today, for example, you could go up to Beck, who's up, you know, leading the children right now, and tell her how much you appreciate her and for what she's doing for the kids. But just don't use words. Anyone can do that. Use action. So instead of just running down to have your coffee and cake at the end of the service, go up and help her pack up. That's love, isn't it? That's real love. That's going to make her love tank fill right up. Sounds funny, but you could also love back with your money. That's really a good sign of where your heart is, according to Jesus. Uh, So you could sign up for financial giving. We've been talking about that over the last month. Financial giving to the ministry of our church. That really acknowledges to Beck and to the leaders of this church that you love them because you're saying, I'm giving you everything, even my wallet. Uh, At Mary Creek, so far, we've had the equivalent of 38 of our adults out of 100 respond with financial giving forms. Um, So there's a lot of adults to go. Now, I know lots of you give, and maybe you're still giving under the old regime when we were giving to St Hilary's, but I encourage you to fill out those forms. Those 38 people um, have uh, have pledged 125,000, which is great. And so to get to our target of 200, we've got another 75 thousand to go we think this is really doable but what all we need is for us to all show the love to each other in this community this would enable back to go up to three days which i know so many of you want to see happen this would enable us to give away more admission uh, to push us forward into 2016 you know giving financially is actually pastoral care it's not just some kind of duty that you've got to do So, there's the first idea. If you want a healthy church, love your leaders. Second idea, if you want a healthy church, good pastoral care, you have responsibilities towards each other. Now, every church has people in it who struggle um, with faith and obedience to God and struggle with life in general. And we all at different times will go through this. Periods of doubt and despair. And Paul is saying that as a whole, you congregation, you have a responsibility to each other. Um, in old-fashioned churches, and you know there are lots of these around today, the model is the minister does all the pastoral care to the congregation. But this is not actually biblical, as we can see in 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, you know, it's the congregation that does it to each other. Uh, look at verse 13b. Live in peace with one, each other, and then verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disciples, disheartened, heartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See, there's those bullet points. Do this, do this, do this, do this. These are all the kind of work, the work of the congregation to each other. Uh, Another thing he says is, um, don't pay anyone back evil for evil. He's just repeating Jesus, isn't he? Um, In verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So if a member of the congregation 
wrongs you, you don't respond with a wrong, you respond with a right. And in actual fact, the passage isn't completely clear. It, it seems like it's saying maybe this also applies to the whole world. So, you know, not just to the congregation. If an outsider, non, a person who's not part of Mary Creek, wrongs you, you also respond in love to them. And, um, you know, this is why the disciples said to Jesus at one point, uh, this is a very hard teaching. Um, of course, it finds its logic in the person of Christ, this idea, who showed perfect grace by dying for sinners. When he was hanging there on the cross, sweating, bleeding, listening to the crowd yell out mock, mockery, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As John said in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Now at its most basic level, pastoral care is uh, the work of bringing people back to God. It's not just about making people feel nice or um, bringing over a casserole, which are all good things, but it's about bringing people back to God. In, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories, which all kind of give us an understanding of pastoral care. Um, on the one hand, he, he, he's describing himself, or he's describing God. He says, he says um, he's like the, the shepherd who is so, con, so concerned for the one lost sheep that he leaves all the others and goes and looks for the, the lost sheep. Or he's like the, the woman who has lost, has, you know, has lost that one coin in the house and she goes around and she, she so wants to find the precious lost coin, she'll do anything to find it. In contrast, um, God's not like, He's not like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who, when the younger brother rebels and goes out, the older brother just gets in a huff and just, just stays at home feeling self-righteous. God's not like that. In contrast, he is like the father who, when the son comes home, the prodigal son returns, the father welcomes him with open arms. These are all great images of pastoral care, the pastoral God, you know. And um, we get this word pastoral from the fact that Jesus dominant image of, uh, of leadership is as the shepherd. And so he cares for his sheep in the pasture. Um, in fact, he is the good shepherd. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. John chapter 10. So we should live out this kind of Christ-like sacrificial love for one another. Now, I'm sure that um, you're on board with this idea. I'm sure that you have got a basic understanding that Christians should love one another at church. So sometimes it's good for us to think about these issues by flipping them around, by thinking about the reverse, and then we'll have a, maybe perhaps a clearer idea. Because often um, as Christians, we, we're not loving to one another. Often churches are so dysfunctional. There's a guy I know, Tim Dyer, who, who's based in Tasmania, and he's got his whole ministry. And it, but a full-time job, he basically gets helicopter dropped into churches that have fallen apart because they've stopped loving one another. And there could have been all kinds of things going wrong. But it's so dysfunctional, and his job is to try and bring healing to the, to the, to the overall group by going through a process. Churches can be basket cases. Um, one of the most common ways Christians can be like this is through just not being full-on hateful towards one another. That, that's kind of 
That's the extreme, but more commonly, it's through being half committed to one another. It's like, um, you know, not really being there for each other. I remember when I used to lead at St. Hilary's, um, about 10 years ago, um, there was a stage that the young adults were going through when I was leading them of whinging and whining. And, you know, there, were, there was a kind of a classic list of complaints. Um, you had one person who would complain that the, the worship songs don't go on long enough. There'd be another person complain that they go on too long. There'd be another person who complained that we weren't charismatic enough. There'd be another person who complained that the sermons didn't go long enough and were not meaty enough. There'd be another sermon who, person who complained the sermons you know, were too full on. There'd be another person who complained you know, uh, that uh, there were too many um, young people and we need to have older people in the congregation and we should get rid of the teenagers and have a separate congregation. You know, and it was just going crazy. And it was in like about my first year or so of, of leading this congregation. And so what we did was um, we had this day when we were doing vision and trading and stuff and we got the congregation together, the young adults, so there's about 120 of them or something, and I remember saying, okay, if you want to have a church that's so amazing, because you all do, what we're going to do is we're going to start by loving each other, okay, and um, we're going to do that by, I'm going to offer, uh, put out this idea for the congregation, to commit to each other for three years. See, there are people with one foot in the church, one foot out of the church, you know, checking out all the other churches around and there were people who were like, you know, not sure if they were part of it or not and, and, and all, the, all the classic things that half-committed Christians can do. So I said, hands up, who can commit to three years? Actually, I think I'd given them a warning and I had like a, they had noticed that I was going to be saying this. Only one person stuck their hand up out of 120. This is kind of an awkward moment in my leadership. Um, I said to them, you know, when you sign up for a mobile phone plan, you can sign up for two years. Come on, it's church. Can you do three? And I got responses like, yeah, but God might call me to another church. Or, yeah, but I might want to travel. Yeah, but, you know. And so, basically, there was this inability to, to love each other at a basic level of even just committing to each other. They had this dream of an idealised utopian church based around them and their preferences. It's obviously not all of them, but there was a sig significant number at that point. Now, this is all very destructive for a church. They got over it. I got over it. We all worked on it together over time. It's not loving, though, is it? It's not good pastoral care. If you can't love each other deeply, if you can't commit to each other, then how can you expect to have a good church? In a letter to his illegal seminary uh, in Finkenwalder in 1938, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He wrote to them, he said, He who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. See, as disillusionment settles in, the unhappy Christian starts referring to they and them, that church over there, as if they're not part of it. They detach themselves. But of course, you can criticise the church and say it's not generous to the poor enough, for example. But how generous are you to the poor? I often find the people who criticise the most aren't living out the thing that they're saying. You know, this church is too consumerist. Well, how much of a consumer are you? This church isn't praying enough. How much are you praying? 
There is a time and a place for healthy, constructive criticism of each other. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about arrogance and destruction. So if one of your friends is doing this, you say to them, get behind me, Satan. When Bonhoeffer was growing as a Christian, he had good reason to complain about his church. He tasted a variety of amazing churches across the world. He'd been to America and New York and he'd seen the black churches and thought they have the best music in the world. I want to have music like that in Germany. He'd uh, met uh, a French pacifist intellectual and uh, said, oh man, we've got to be more committed to nonviolent protesting here. He believed the church was the answer to the world's problems and God was using the church to do this. But do you know what he had? He had a church that could not even stand up to the Nazis. They wouldn't even criticise the Nazis. Now, Bonhoeffer could, if he was complaining, I reckon that's totally justified, but he even analysed his own motives. And he realised something as he was thinking about, about church and about himself. And he realised that actually the reason why I can't, why I should be very careful about criticising my own people is because we are who we are because we are the forgiven people as the church. We are called to welcome and forgive one another because Christ has forgiven us. God has forgiven us through Christ. Bonhoeffer says, he says, church, it's not an ideal over here which we must realise. It is rather a reality that already exists, created by God in Christ, in which we can participate so the mature Christian is the one who lets go of the fantasy, the fantasy of church and embraces the reality. This is the sort of person who will be able to deeply love the people in their church and commit beyond kind of their own personal um, needs. The mature Christian, according to Paul, warns those who are idle and disruptive, encourages the disheartened, helps the weak, is patient with everyone. So this is why pastoral care really is dynamic, isn't it? It's electric. It's more than just bringing over casseroles, although that's really important, and I appreciate it when you did it for me, when we had a baby. We look over at church, in, and we see the awkward person, the person who says weird things at the end of the service, and we think, oh, I hope that person doesn't talk to me in the church. I hope they don't corner me. But Bonhoeffer says, actually, the exclusion of the weak and insignificant, if that's what you're doing, the seemingly useless people, the people you think are useless, if you did that from a Christian community, that might actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. If you want us at Mary Creek to be a strong, healthy church that's alive and dynamic and electric, then start by loving each other. Don't just love the easy people. Love the strugglers. Love the weak. Bonhoeffer says, you might get angry at the church. You might feel apathetic. But when you do, instead of abandoning it, at the very hour of disillusionment when my brother becomes an incomparably salutary moment because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. 
Now, when we are loving each other, uh, there's content to this love. It's not just kind of nice, you know, tolerance. It's actually biblical love, where we speak the Bible into each other's lives, the wisdom of God. It's, it's love with content shaped by the gospel, okay? Um, we're not just some kind of hospital for sad people, but we are the body of Christ. Um, in a book which we've got at the back called Side by Side by an uh, American author, Ed Welch, he promotes his effective model of pastoral care, which is basically the church walking side by side with each other and loving each other and speaking biblically into each other's lives and going the extra mile. And he says, if a church really wants to move beyond being a shallow middle-class church, then do that. Um, don't just hold each other at arm's length and go home at the end of the service after your cup of tea but travel together through life. And this involves knowing the Bible enough to know what to say in the moment, taking up those opportunities. And, and, you know, it takes time to learn to do this. At the end of the service today, no doubt, you'll talk about your week, you'll talk about maybe your kids, if you've got kids, you'll talk about your job, you'll talk about things that you've seen on TV or movie you've seen. But will you talk about the longings of your heart? Are you really being real with each other? It's not that you always have to be intense, but um, I agree with Ed Welch when, when he says you have to be willing to at least reveal the longings of your heart to each other if we're really going to love each other. Last week when I interviewed Peter Corney when he came to preach with us, he gave us an easy suggestion. He said, if you want to be a strong, healthy church that grows, start by um, just loving each other and building strong community and then focus on your mission because People will look at the way you operate as a community. Um, and I agree with that. I challenge you to love each other by prioritising each other, by going into each other's homes, getting to know each other with your guard down, listening to each other's stories, bearing each other's burdens. I think that's what, if I, I want you to take home anything today, take this home. Go into each other's homes. Go on holidays together. Because we are not a club. We are a family. Families are messy. Families are loyal. And families are sacrificial. So if you want to have a healthy church with strong pastoral care, love the leaders and love each other. Let's pray. Look, God, we pray that you can help us to live this out and for us to be responding to you, the love that you've shown us. Um, and... We pray that we will be inspired to do this this week, today, and, and, and from now on. Pray that Mary Creek can be a church that is growing because of this. Amen. Amen.